Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's the start of September 2023, and I am out at our local nature reserve. At this time of year, we might expect days of late summer sun, golden wheat waving in the breeze, and orchards laden with fruit. Alas, as you can probably hear, it is raining and dingy. I woke up to a surprising nip in the air today, which served as a sharp-edged reminder, autumn is coming. Normally, this is the kind of day when I would like to be at home, curled up before the fire, ideally with a book and a hot drink. Instead, I have come out to wander through a forest that is completely green and rich with life. As I step through the undergrowth and look around, I can say confidently that there's not a sign of a turning leaf here yet. Least of all on the mighty oak tree before me, which I'm going to wrap on with my knuckles. The oak is integral to the history and folklore of England. Druids worshipped in oak groves. Oak galls were the source of some of our earliest inks, and acorns, the fruit of the oak, were carried as charms to bring luck and health. Oak timber is, of course, prized for its strength and durability, serving as the backbone of the English Navy, and, more poignantly to me, as a feature of every great cathedral and almost every ancient building in this country. There are more oaks in England than any other woodland tree. They were here before people were and can live for centuries, sometimes millennia. But for my story today, I'm particularly interested in just one oak. In Windsor Great Park, which surrounds Windsor Castle in Berkshire, there is a tree called Hearn's Oak. It was planted in 1906, a replacement for a previous tree also called Hearn's Oak, which was itself a replacement for another Hearn's Oak, which blew down in a storm in 1863. Queen Victoria was adamant that when Hearn's Oak came down, it'd be replaced by another one, and then another one. 
And this royal imperative stretches back to when the first Hearn's Oak was cut down in 1796 during the reign of George III. That one was truly ancient. Yet, in a country in many ways defined by the oak, why should a single oak tree matter? Why name it? And why is Hearn's Oak found so particularly close to the official residence of every English monarch since Henry I? Well, with that thought in mind, gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens set on a tree. Down a down, hey down a down They were as black as they might be With a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name is Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, Eleanor Connor. Hello! Got to say, the weather has definitely turned colder Ooh, here at Three yeah. Ravens HQ. And I'm totally here for it. <laughs> I need or felt it a ghost and a pumpkin this afternoon. Bring on autumn. Yeah, I mean, summer never really happened here. But it's starting to feel more like we can genuinely gather around the campfire and tell stories now. <laughs> Speaking of which, we should start the episode by saying a massive thank you and welcome to our newest supporters on Patreon. Hello to Joe. Andrew, Craig, Sarah, Ruby, Ted, Louise, Eddie and Jean. Oof, here we go. <laughs> oh, hail Joe, king of Patreon. Oh, hail Andrew, king of Patreon. Oh, hail Craig, king of Patreon. All hail Sarah, king of Patreon. All hail Ruby, king of Patreon. All hail Ted, king of Patreon. All hail Louise, king of Patreon. All hail Eddie, king of Patreon. All hail Jean, king of Patreon. What a bumper <laughs> week. Thank you so, so much to each and every one of you. We are incredibly grateful to you for your support and welcome to our Conspiracy of Ravens. Welcome. <laughs> if you would like to support the podcast and access all of our main and bonus episodes ad-free and receive loads of bonus content, including exclusive episodes, episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club and all of our stories as text versions, then please do consider signing up for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast. Speaking of which, the brand new Three Ravens newsletter came out for our supporters on Patreon on Friday when that's packed the gunnels with witching goodness, including the month's major English folk customs, zodiac and Celtic tree information for the month, our exclusive tarot spread for September, our exclusive magic spell for the month, and more besides. Plus, we also announced this month's Three Ravens Film Club film. Yes, so we've gone for an absolute classic, in part inspired by the season, yeah. in part inspired by our visit to Dartmoor in our Devon episode. Mm. 
Beware the moon and stick to the roads because this month we're all going to watch John Landis' 1981 folk horror classic, An American Werewolf in London. Oh, baby. I absolutely love American Werewolf in London and was very lucky to actually meet John Landis at the world premiere of Beware the Moon, which is an amazing documentary all about the making of the film. And that was at Fright Fest, I think, way back in like 2009. You told me about that that documentary. I think we should watch that as well as part of it. Are you proposing a double feature? Oh, yes. Science fiction double. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> so, yes, please, if you want to join in, then do watch An American Werewolf in London and either post your thoughts about the film to us, thread about it on Facebook, or tweet us, or email us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com, and we'll include your thoughts in our Film Club episode, which we'll be recording later in September. And as for emails, we're inching closer to the end of Series 2, which means two things. Firstly... Please, please send through entries to our card competition. Going to be honest, we are a little light on entries this time around. So get scribbling or painting or sticking stuff to stuff. (laughs) However you art, we want you to art and send it to us. In case you weren't aware, we're inviting original artwork by artists of all skill levels on the theme of the folklore of winter. Mm -hmm. And after the end of series two, we'll judge the entries, pick our three favourite designs and have them printed as greetings cards to sell for a 50-50 profit share with the winners via our shop at threeravenspodcast.com in time for everyone to send them to their friends and family this Christmas. Please enter. We're hoping people are working on their entries before sending them at the last possible moment, but we're very keen to see what everyone has come up with. And don't be afraid, we really do want to see art from everyone. Similarly, after episode 13, we'll be taking a little bit of a break. Yeah. Not not quite the same as last time, as we're actually still going to be releasing a run of spooky stories and other goodies yeah. in the lead up to Halloween. But we also uh, want to release our second ever listener episode. Mm. So if you have interesting folklore from where you live or a favourite story or just some interesting folky anecdotes, please do send them through to us as an email to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. The same address to send your original artwork as a jpeg for the winter folklore cart design contest right well onwards and we're releasing this episode on monday the 4th of september which is an awesome time for folky goings on well that's good one of the strangest things about summer was coming to the realization that the folk calendar gets really quiet through it july and really august it does but thankfully it's heating up now even if the temperatures are threatening to drop with a raft of folk festivals taking place this week including yesterday being nutting day <laughs> the day when traditionally hazelnuts were harvested en masse with nutting day also being the day when lace makers and traditional crafters were first allowed to start lighting candles to work by something they were allowed to do every day from nutting day until shrove tuesday i find it really hard to hear the phrase nutting day and not giggle why i don't understand what's wrong with nutting day people get the nuts from the nut bushes leave it along okay well in addition to that the St Giles Fair in Oxford is taking place today, the first Monday after St Giles Day, with a massive market celebrating St Giles Street's medieval origins. And last Friday was also the day Oliver Cromwell is traditionally paid tribute to at the Houses of Parliament. A tradition I thoroughly condone and they'd better be observing it. <laughs> this weekend also marked the hop hoodening in Canterbury Cathedral. I 
think that we touched on that briefly in our Kent episode, yeah. but I can't quite remember what well, okay. it was. So the hop hoodening is where the hops have been harvested and are led into the cathedral on hooded horses made of wood, led by Invicta, the white horse of Kent, with a hop queen and a troop of Morris dancers following on behind. Oh, I love the idea of hooded hops horses coming to church. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, the hooded horses aren't allowed to stay in the church for the service because they are pagans. <laughs> so they have to go back outside. They, they don't want to convert them. No, They're happy to keep them as yeah, pagans. Yeah. So out you go, That's hooded it. horses. <laughs> and is that it? Is there more? Uh, there's one more. Friday was also the day of the Barnet Fair in Colchester in Essex, which has been running since, check this, 1256. The day sees the people of Colchester invited to gather oysters along the banks of the River Colne, but not before the mayor is sailed up the Pyfleet Creek to read a proclamation and make a toast of gin and gingerbread. After that, it's like an oyster free-for-all. That sounds delicious. <laughs> Oysters, gin and gingerbread. I know, right? It's, it's so fun. It's been going since 1256, yeah. but it sounds like a modern sort of bougie food festival, It does, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this year they put more members of the local council on the boat with the mayor. They all clearly wanted to be part of yeah, celebrations. Yeah, get involved with the gin and gingerbread. Yeah, quite oh, Well, right. it sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, shall we unhorse the county criers from their pagan mounts and have them ring us into Berkshire? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. And just because you say you're pagans doesn't mean you can act like a load of lazy, good-for-nothing layabout. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Royal County of Berkshire, which people generally just call Berkshire, is located in the southeast of England. It was historically bordered by Oxfordshire to the north, Buckinghamshire to the northeast, Middlesex to the east, Surrey to the southeast, and Wiltshire to the west. As always, there's a map to find its precise location on the blog at Three Ravens Podcast. Now, you said royal county. Mm -hmm. Um, Why is Berkshire the royal county? Because surely, historically, the capital has either been at Winchester or at Westminster. Well, because Berkshire is home to Windsor Castle, which was founded not long after the Norman Conquest and which has, for the longest of times, been the official residence of the British monarch. Oh, I see. So Berkshire's where the monarch lives. Mm -hmm. Although, doesn't the king also live at Buckingham Palace? Well, yes. Clarence House. Yes. And Holywood House in Scotland and Hillsborough Castle in Northern Ireland. Yes, all right, but the King's official residence is Windsor Castle. I mean, you know, Buckingham Palace is just the crash pad in the city, you know, while the others, they're just holiday homes (laughs) because... Tradition, I guess. Of course, (laughs) me. So Berkshire's boundaries have changed quite a bit over the years. Historically, its northern border was the River Thames, but more recently, parts of it have become sections of Oxfordshire. So if you remember back in episode 10, we talked about the Ox Street men and the Uffington White Horse and Wayland Smithy, where an old god will shod your horse if you leave it there overnight. I remember very well. And thank you very much, by the way, to our listeners Jacqueline, who sent us a photo of the Abington Bun Throwing Festival yeah. in May, and of the Ox Street Morris dancers who were there with the ceremonial ox head. Yeah, it's she amazing. sure did. Thank you, Jacqueline. And I mention all that because Wayland Smithy, the Uffington White Horse, and Ox Street itself did technically used to be 
in Berkshire, but the county lines have been chopped and changed at various points across the centuries. So, first big question then, what's the county town of Berkshire? It's Reading, which is maybe best known internationally for the annual Reading Music Festival. Other major towns in Berkshire include Slough, Bracknell, Maidenhead and Newbury, but Reading itself is probably the most famous, not least because, of course, of Oscar Wilde's truly <laughs> excellent poem, the Ballad of Reading Jail. <laughs> okay, so I remember one night with this. I hadn't heard the poem before. <laughs> so I asked Martin if he'd read it to me quite innocently, thinking yep. it would perhaps be, you know, a few stanzas long. <laughs> My goodness, he was up like a rat up a drain pipe, <laughs> zooming to the bookshelf, grabbing the book, zipping back, and well, I had no idea it was such a long poem. <laughs> Pretty great, though. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I just kind of wish I'd got a fresh glass of wine before you started. But it was an astounding performance. <laughs> oh, well, there, there was gesticulation. It, it really was something to behold. <laughs> and in a way, I'm sorry it was only me who did get to behold it. Perhaps uh, a special treat. We could record you doing it again oh, sometime. Oh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but anyway, sorry about uh, denying you wine for such an extended period of time. But in my defence, if someone invites me to read The Ballad of Reading Jail, I am not turning down the opportunity. <laughs> anyway, zooming back through history, Berkshire was historically part of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Wessex, and though it's now in Oxfordshire, while it was part of Berkshire, Alfred the Great was born in the county in the town of Wantage. Long before he went off hiding in the reeds and fens. Yep, like every good English rebel should, really. Um, and during the Saxon era, Berkshire was kind of a power base for the old kings of England, which is why once Billy the Conks invaded in 1066 and shot Harold in the eye and all that, um, he kind of levelled Berkshire, killing every ancient nobleman in the county and replacing them all with Norman lords. Ah, well, that that's the Normans for you, isn't yep. it? That, that's your lot, isn't it, Martin? Coming here, taking our Berkshire. Oh, is it? I'm totally to blame. Me personally. Yeah, I think you should apologise. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna. <laughs> we brought nice churches with us. Anyway, Normans aside, the medieval church was pretty strong in Berkshire. And for that reason, Abingdon Abbey and Reading Abbey were pretty important religious centres. Both very much still worth a visit. And Berkshire's economy primarily was based in wool and cloth making right up until the 17th century. Now, I remember you saying that Oxford is basically barren of castles because of its position in the country. Yeah. Is Berkshire, as its neighbour, equally lacking in major forts and crumbling battlements? Well, it's a bit unlike Oxford, actually, in that loads of battles and wars have raged through Berkshire over the years, from the times of King Offa in the 8th century through to Danish invasions, the Anarchy, the Barons' War and the Civil War. Oh, so it's a bit feisty in Berkshire. Good to know. Yeah, and there were once many more castles in the county than there are today, including Beams Castle, which was broken down in the 13th century, and Brightwell Castle, Farringdon Castle and Newbury Castle, all of which were destroyed a little bit after the anarchy, and Hampstead Norris Castle, which was once a Norman Mott and Bailey. Still, most of the castles in the county are sadly now just earthworks. See, I find it difficult to get very excited about earthworks. Mm. I mean, I do like the sensation you sometimes get standing in a place, but if I'm going to a castle, I want, you know, a bit of a romantic ruin, ideally, some sky windows, maybe some worn stone stairs that aren't safe to run up, but I'm going to have it to try anyway. <laughs> and when I'm looking at an earthworks, I do sometimes think, well, 
That is a big lump in the ground. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And some of the castles in Berkshire, which don't exist now, were once really important. One of them, the Attendon Castle, was trashed during a pretty exciting civil war battle. It's now the site of a manor house. And then Hinton Waldris Castle, the earthworks of which are now in Oxfordshire, technically. But still, that was once the home of Mary de Bowen, who married old Henry Bolingbroke. Hey, that's Henry the Fourth to you, Buster. Well, sometimes, Eleanor, you have to just call a Bolingbroke a Bolingbroke. But also, Henry V, when he was growing up, used to play at Hinton Waldris Castle. For many a thousand widows shall this his mock mock out of their dear husbands, mock mothers from their sons, mock castles down, and some are yet ungotten and unborn that shall have cause to curse the Dauphin's scorn. Well, Indeed, I'm sure that's exactly what he was thinking at the time. As, uh, you know, translated by Billy Shakes a yeah, few years yeah. later. <laughs> so, I mean, we know there's there's one major, massive, super important castle in Berkshire, don't we? We sure do. Donington Castle. Oh, you silly man. I mean, yes, I am. But Donington Castle Gatehouse, which sadly is the only bit that remains after, again, your plundering pal Oliver Cromwell sacked the rest of it. Probably deserved it. But still, it's an awesome place to visit, looked after by English heritage. Yeah, but... And the Chaucers lived at Donington Castle, you know. Geoffrey and that, with his Canterbury Tales and everything. I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, Martin, Windsor Castle. Windsor Castle. Yeah, fair play. Windsor Castle, which is an insanely beautiful and incredibly important place. First built by William the Conqueror, then inhabited by Henry I. It is the longest occupied palace in Europe. It features astonishing sections of architecture, including the 15th century Chapel of St. George, as well as a wild mishmash of all sorts of British phases of design, from restoration through to Baroque, Rococo and Victorian. It famously nearly burned down in 1992. And if you're anywhere near Berkshire, then it's one of those places you really do need to visit even if it does cost a few shekels to enter. But the Great Park's free. Apart from the private bits, which you can only enter if you're a member of the royal family. Which we're not, and which is why I think Oliver Cromwell may have had a point. (laughs) Because there are trees in the private section of Windsor Great Park that are over 1,500 years old. I want to see them, but I can't, because King Prince Charles won't let me. Yeah, he's a stickler for the rules, old King Prince Charles. (laughs) We need to stop calling him that. He's just King Charles. No, he's not. He's King Prince Charles. That's his name. (laughs) He's been Prince Charles for our entire lifetime in our defence. Yeah, he can't suddenly start being king and expect us to change. No. <laughs> so uh, does it have a motto? What, Berkshire? Yeah. Uh, no, actually. Really? Come yeah, on. I know. It does have a, a pretty cool county flag, though, featuring an oak tree and a stag. Well, that redeems it a bit, but at the same time, it also kind of reminds me of the ancient oak trees I'm not allowed to see. OK, well, let me try and distract you from the thorny issues of hereditary monarchy with some folklore. I'm listening. Okay, well, there is a lot, and I mean a lot in Berkshire. So where would you like to start? Silly customs, spooky ghosties, or ancient legends? Hmm, spooky ghosties, please. Very well. So here's quite a good one. The headless ghost of Hampton Pie. Hampton Pie? Yes, spelt P-Y-E. He was a person. And so the story goes, back around 1700, there was a young man called... Hampton Pye, son of a local gentryman, Sir Robert Pye, from Farringdon. But Sir Robert had remarried and his new wife wanted her future children to inherit the title and lands and so on. So Lady Pye bribed a naval captain and had her son, Hampton, 
press gang. Oh, devious lady yep, pie. I know, right? So, off Hampton went into battle during the Spanish Wars under the command of George Rook, where, horror of horrors, Hampton's head was blown off by a cannonball. Oh, poor Hampton Pie. Yeah, poor Hampton Pie. He was buried at sea, but wanting to appear like a good grieving mother-in-law, back home in Berkshire, Lady Pie organised a memorial to her dead stepson at Farringdon Church, during which, to her horror, the ghost of Hampton Pie appeared holding his blown-off, mangled head, causing all sorts of ruckus and alarm. <laughs> Surprisingly, blimey, no-one wants the headless ghost of the deceased gate crashing their own memorial service. <laughs> it's unseemly. <laughs> now, Lady Pie, who freaked out, apparently then confessed what she'd done to Sir Robert, and that was their marriage over and done with. Justice. Excellent. But that's not all, oh. because apparently after that, Hampton's headless ghost was known to appear to the old captain who press-ganged him, George Rook, haunting him at his residence in Bath right up until George Rook died. And then, after that, the ghost was regularly seen inside Farringdon Church and in the churchyard right up until the Victorian era when it was finally exercised. OK, that's excellent. Berkshire, <laughs> you're redeeming yourself. Excellent work, Hampton pie and your headless ghost. <laughs> so what would you like now? Another ghosty or some silly customs or an ancient legend? Uh, can I have a silly custom please? Your wish is my command. So a pretty funny little folk character from Berkshire's history is the Vicar of Bray. This character is supposedly based on a real person, Simon Allen, who was said to have served as the vicar in the village of Bray in Berkshire across the reigns of Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary I, then Queen Elizabeth I, meaning he had to keep changing his religious beliefs and behaviours over and over again to basically just keep his head. Oh, that's great. So he just changed his mind about what was good vicaring and what wasn't. Yeah, exactly. And it was apparently a common insult across England, starting from Berkshire, during the 18th century, to call someone who changed their principles to suit the political moment a vicar of Bray. And the man himself was written about in a text called The Worthies of England, published in 1662, which says of him, This vicar, being attacked for being a turncoat and an inconstant changeling, said, Not so, for I always kept my principle, which is this, to live and die the vicar of Bray. <laughs> Fair play to the chap. I mean, I, I admire that. <laughs> we must have spoken about this a bit in the past on the podcast, about just how confusing it must mm. have been to be Catholic, then Protestant, then Catholic, then Protestant again. Yep. People must have had to be really nimble to survive, especially so close to the seat of power. So Very true. good for the Vicar of Bray. <laughs> now, aside from calling someone a Vicar of Bray, Berkshire is also the county famous for being the home of Hungerford. And I refer you back to episode seven for this one, as Hungerford is where you will find the only surviving annual Hocktide Festival in England. Ah, Hocktide, yeah. the Tiddyman. <laughs> yes, the Tiddyman. And lots of kissing, if I remember rightly. Ale tastings, parades. It's a right old time Hocktide. Are there any more weird festivals in Berkshire? Oh, yeah, loads more than we have time for. But to offer just one more, in the village of Cumnor on Christmas Day afternoon, it's traditional for all the parishioners to head to the vicarage where, for hundreds of years, they have been entertained and served with ale and beer brewed from four bushels of malt, bread made from two bushels of wheat, 
and over, check this, 25 kilograms of locally made cheese. Oh, it sounds like a party. <laughs> Though going anywhere after Christmas lunch seems pretty unlikely for me. <laughs> I basically just need a comfortable chair to call home. Even the siren song of 25 kilos of cheese might not be enough to rouse me from my postprandial malaise. <laughs> well, time for some ancient legends then? Oh, go on. Okay, well... There is tons for you to pick up on in our second lap of Berkshire next year. But here are two quick ones about kings called Edward. The first pertains to Edward the Confessor, who lived in the 11th century. So the story goes, there was a woodcutter working in the forest of Buell who got tired, went to sleep and woke up blind. Oh, poor guy. Not the best job for a blind person, cutting wood. (laughs) No, very true. So, luckily, this woodcutter had a premonition that he should visit all of Berkshire's 87 churches and offer a prayer at each. This he did, going last to Windsor Castle, where he explained his travails to the king, the aforementioned Edward the Confessor, who sprinkled holy water on the woodcutter's eyes, enabling him to see once more. Well, that's very wholesome. It really is. Uh, Then, for my other legend, it said that in the 14th century, Edward III, midway through the grand ball he was hosting at Windsor Castle, noticed during a dance with the Countess of Salisbury, a.k.a. Joan, the Fair Maid of Kent, that poor Joan had (laughs) lost her garter, which had fallen from her leg onto the dance floor. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> what a thing. Poor yeah, I know, right? And apparently, base assumptions were made, including about Joan's looseness in relation to the king, to which Edward III, angered, exclaimed, shame to you who thinks evil of it, brandishing the garter and putting it onto his own leg. From this, we had the birth of a very long-running English tradition known ever after as the chivalric order of the garter, which Edward III initiated, inviting knights from across England to compete at a series of jousts known as the Round Table Tournaments, and the order of the garter continues to this day, with Garter Day taking place on the third Monday in June every year, where applicants are considered by ballot for new members to enter the most senior order of chivalry in Britain. And they do actually wear embroidered garters oh, yeah. to this day. Like, the official insignia is still the garter with Oniswaki Malipons embroidered that's on right. it, which is, is that in French, um, yeah, that's which it. they probably spoke at yeah, that point. No, he definitely yeah. did. Like I just, chivalric French. I just um, sort of uh, translated it to English. But yes, shame, <laughs> shame to you who thinks evil of it. Yeah, um, and you can still see that in royal insignia and oh, for sure. today, can't you? I mean, Henry VIII made a right old fuss about the order yeah, of the garter he when he was king. <laughs> he did. But the Order of the Garter is a relatively young tradition compared to the subject of our story today, which is all about Herm the Hunter. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Dearest Mary, how I crave to see you. The shocks I've had to my heart and to my mind are the stuff of which some men never recover. Were it not for your love of me, I too may have lost grasp of my senses, as has he. But he's not mad, Mary. It's not what I thought. I've seen with my own eyes the truth of it. Our most noble king is no lunatic. Rather, he's haunted by a fiend, most ancient and abhorred, afflicted with a curse I fear may never be lifted. As you know, my father was the first in our family called to serve the king. That was in the year 1788 when I was still in pursuit of my fellowship at Gonville and Keyes College. I was at this time intermittently employed as a physic in Grantham, working alongside my brother John. He, being older, accompanied our father down from Lincolnshire to London, and there he repaired to the White House at Kew Gardens under the strictest conditions of secrecy. You know, my love, that the Willis family are not from an ancient or noble line, and that our fame and wealth, such as it is, is as direct result from the efforts of John and my father at the treatment of our king. For all the kingdom knew of the madness of King George III, nay, all the world knew of it, and so those men who, by their skill, cured him of it, well, the world was open to them like a pearl revealed within an oyster. I was at that time but 28 years old, a decade from meeting you that fine summer's day. And now I know you're at home, in Buckingham Street, with our angel Robert no doubt babbling on your lap. It's of great shame to me that I cannot be with you, and my heart burns to know the ignominy heaped upon men such as I, who wed though forbidden to do so. As a Cambridge fellow, I may have duties to perform, and no greater duty than this which I have undertaken to do, and so we must remain apart, our love a secret, but I'd always believed that once the king again was well I could return to my duties as a father and as your beloved. Alas, for what I have seen tonight chills me to the core and gives me fear that I should never be able to return to your side, for our king's malaise is not of the mind, but of the body politic. Yet how to treat this ailment? For I remember well father's return to Bourne as a famous man with an annuity of £1,500. It was with these funds he opened Shillingthorpe Hall, his second sanatorium following the model of Greatford Hall, his first great success. I should think you will never meet my father, for he's loath to travel now and is a sanguine fellow and formidable when formed of an opinion. It was my ardent hope that he would change his mind, but he's a man of iron intent, defined by his dedication to unambitious, all but artless service of mankind. His is a long shadow and 
I but a pygmy within it. As a boy, I saw him working with those men and women, all thought mad beyond mortal aid, all of whom he set about working on the lands of Greatford Hall. He put them to as labourers, ploughmen, gardeners, threshers, thatchers, all attired in black coats with white waistcoats, black silk breeches and stockings. Each looked so neat against the russet earth and wide sky. He even had the head of each bewigged, well-powdered, neat and arranged, and it seemed a miracle that in that atmosphere of health and cheerfulness he aided in the recovery of every person attached to that place. Perhaps, Mary, you are unfamiliar with the ways of the asylum, but they are, for the most part, rotten places, little better than prison cells. Across this land, Christian souls are abandoned to gibber in their filth. But Father has always said, treat a soul as less than human and so their faculties will remain. His methods were in contrast to the likes of Bailey and Heberden, the first physicians to treat the king. Great men of their day, but they did burn the monarch's skin as if he were possessed by a demon, striking his person and restricting him within the confines of a straightening jacket. The bleak nature of these treatments were hateful to my father, who instead set the king to work of all things. So it was that his majesty took to planting flowers in the great gardens at Kew, engaging in daily exercise and toil and companionship from my father and with John. This is how King George recovered. Yet now his illness has returned with threefold strength and knowing its root cause I fear there's little hope, though to say so feels like treason. You see, when John, who'd accompanied our father at Kew, returned to the practice at Grantham, he was quiet on the matter of the king. I spent many an evening and a good deal of port wine in an effort to loosen his lips, but John is a faithful and trustworthy man, irrespective of the £650 he receives each year from the king as a reward for his past labours. When I would ask of him, his face would darken, and he would say, Robert, speak not of it, and I would know to let it be. Only now, with father too old to travel, as you know well, it has fallen to John and I to attend his majesty. And so, before we came here to Windsor, John finally abated and revealed to me the truth. I remember his white face and bright blue eyes as he spoke, his hair already grey as wire. His nervous disposition caused his fingers to shake about his wine glass and he looked down as he spoke as if ashamed. The trouble, he told me, began in 1775, Robert, much earlier than most know, for it was then that the king first saw him, the Green Rider, galloping through Windsor Park. It took a while for John to explain it fully, but it seemed the rider he alluded to was a phantasm seen only by his majesty. A stag-headed man, he said, with antlers growing from his hoary skull, his skin covered with myriad mosses and lichen. 
When John first told me of such, I laughed, thinking he was pulling my leg, but he shot back such a look of thunder that I knew I'd transgressed upon his honour and that of the king, so I begged forgiveness both of him and the king and of the Lord our saviour. Thusly I learned that the malaise began in earnest when, across the wide Atlantic Sea, battles were raging at Lexington and Concord. Our American brothers had risen up against us, and so, amidst this bad news, it was said the king first noticed the green rider about his palace at Windsor, thundering through the park on a horse of leaves and tree roots with eyes of coal-red flame. There are legends of this place, Mary, of that rider, stretching back to the time of Queen Elizabeth and earlier still. It's said that on the threat of Spanish invasion, she saw him and called on Dr. D, who too saw him and heard him rattling his chains and leading hounds of pale blue fire about her forests. It said that after he's seen, all the cattle hereabouts give not milk but blood. And for as long as there's been in England, when it's threatened, then the Green Rider is said to appear. Well, my father, being an ardent student of nature, thought these stories of the king to be some form of delusion, a children's story heard by his majesty as a boy, twisted into a living fantasy. So it was that, although the king was said to often speak to the rider, who he said even came to his chambers, communicating to him in an endless babbling stream of speech in his apartments, all through the night as well as the day, once repaired to Kew, away from the ancient forests of Windsor, the monarch made a recovery. My father was said to have convinced him in time that his talk of the Green Rider was but a product of an overactive mind. With this knowledge, John and I attended His Majesty at his palace at Windsor, beginning our treatments last August. No, I came to that most grand of palaces with no doubt in my heart or mind that His Majesty's tales of the Green Rider were but delusions. I've now learned better, and I must speak of it to someone. John has sworn me to silence, and so that someone, my darling, must be you. You hold all my greatest secrets, the most sacred of all our son. And though it is a burden, you must keep this one too, for as long as you live and ever after. And though you may think me mad, know, my love, that I am hale and well, but I have seen such things as would shock a lesser man to death. As I have told you before, in prior missives, attending to his majesty is not a task for all hours of the day. The king is in a weakened state and must spend some hours at rest. So, between John and I, it is not unknown for us to have spans of several hours in which to perambulate through the woods and gardens surrounding the palace. Even now, they are subject to countless improvements by none other than that great architect of our age, James Wyatt, who I'm yet to meet, but one day I hope to. It is a place of marvels to walk through, Mary. In recent years, it was the great work of Paul and Thomas Sandby to improve, with the long walk as laid out by Charles II, flanked by elms planted by William of Orange. 
It was the sand bees who expanded the lake at Virginia Water, adding a waterfall and the obelisk pond, dedicated to the king's brother, the Duke of Cumberland as he was, God rest his soul. It is a place of great tranquillity for the most part, and of great magnificence. In one area, there is a complete set of ruins, built by ancient Romans. Ruins the king himself had brought by ship from Tripolitania on Africa's Barbary coast. I've walked amongst these ruins and touched them, and thought of the same sun shining on those stones that shone on Julius Caesar in the days of antiquity. Greatest of all, though, Mary, are the oaks. For in the great park at Windsor there are oaks planted in the days of King Offa and before. Trees that were acorns in the year of the birth of Christ. Who might have guessed it would be one such oak that would ruin our king and wreak havoc upon his mind? For it was in the year 1796 that our doom was spelled by a team of men with axes, men who felled the tree in which the green rider once slept. I learned of it one night when, having laid the king abed, I went walking in the little park, which is not little, being of over 600 acres. I was strolling beneath a blanket of stars, pinprick bright amidst the shroud of night, when I heard a sound not unlike that of twigs snapping underfoot. But it was not twigs. It was the flints of a pistol clicking back into their place. Who goes there? came a rough-sounding voice, unmistakably that of a Londoner, who I thought must be a rogue or a highwayman. State your name and purpose, or I shall shoot you in the name of the king. Well, I did state my name and my purpose, and learned that this fellow, of the name of Brown, was none other than a groundskeeper at work under the auspices of his majesty. He told me that though the king had all the deer of the park killed or chased off before even my father had attended him, it was still the duty of Brown and men like him to patrol thereabouts in case of thieves or poachers. I'll tell you now, Brown said. You need not fear of poachers here. Only the unwise stalk this stretch of land at night. For all round here know, elsewise, Hearn the Hunter will give chase and know them for his quarry. He scared me in how he spoke with a black-toothed smile. It was the first time I'd heard the name, but I heard then from Brown of the history of Hearn the Hunter and of the ancient oak in which the spirit of that forest used to dwell. Some say, Brown told me, he was once a poacher, caught by King Henry, wrapped in chains and hanged upon that oak. Others say he was a cuckold, for wearing antlers is a punishment of old for those what cannot contain the lustings of their wives. But I know the truth, for I've seen him, and if he's not an ancient spirit of this land, then I never lived. And since that oak came down, he's not bound to nothing. He's free to ride and does, you mark my words. I parted from Brown that night, shaken but resolved. I reported to John of what I'd learned and John thought me a fool for believing Brown's stories. 
but I said to John, warned him that if it were true and the king had cut down the oak in which the green rider dwelt, perhaps that was the cause of his worsened condition. John made me swear I would not speak to his majesty of it, and for a time I did not, but last night, which was a quiet evening, I did just that, saying to the king, Your Highness, tell me of Herne the Hunter. No sooner had I said the name than his majesty turned as pale as snow, his mouth forming into a small, pale-lipped circle, his words falling out of him like his voice was very far away. Tried to chase him off, he told me. Had the deer shot. No more antlers. No more horns. No more drumming. No more drumming in the dark. I knew I had made an error, for then the king would not speak sensibly for many hours, rambling again of the dark drummings he'd heard, and of the green rider, his hounds, his horse of leaves and roots, and of the language which echoed in his thoughts but that could not be understood. In time I had no choice but to treat him. I gave him a dosage of laudanum to make him sleep, and once he was calmed I stormed from his apartments and went myself, my face hidden in shame, out into the little park. I pulled my cloak about me, cursing at myself and intending to find Brown and learn more of the ancient spirit in hope that I might do something to help his majesty once and for all. But the park... It is so big, Mary, and the trees are so high and their foliage so abundant that though I thought to cross one part quickly, ducking into the tree line and emerging near the site of the fallen oak, I became turned around and then I was sorely lost, wandering for what felt like hours. I had time on that walk to think of a great deal. I thought of you, Mary, and little Robert, and of my father, and the hopes I have as a man, for it's my will to lift mankind out of the darkness and better the lot of those thought mad and beyond repair. My failure to do so for our king, the shame of it, it saw me suddenly set to weeping, knelt in the tangled ferns of the forest floor. I smelled him before I saw him was as the smell after a thunderstorm, mixed with the wet and heady stink of peat. It made me start up, as if to stand, but then I froze in fear, hearing Brown's words in my mind, for if I moved I feared he would consider me quarry and hunt me until his hounds tore me apart. Oh, the hounds, Mary. You can't imagine them. Moving like a river, tumbling, surging, flowing in shimmering blue like a glowing wave of blood. Though they howled and barked and scratched and leapt, they were as silent as a tomb, moving through the trees and round about like floodwaters with ears and tails and teeth. But his steed was not silent. 
Neither was it a horse, or even much of a horse's shape, for though once there may have been a skeleton of a stallion beneath what it has since become, the animal is barely recognisable. Its hide is not leather or hair, but made up of a thousand thousand leaves, of birch and ash and alder, of hazel, spruce and yew. Its mane is of holly, run through with berries red as blood. Through and about its mighty limbs run roots thick and thin, some delicate spiralling like spiders' webs, and where its legs touch down, flowers bloom and fade in seasons which last but an instant. And atop that steed, in a saddle made of fungus grown wide and slick and yellow-grey with age, speckled with mushrooms and toadstools, masked in a haze of spores and pollen, rides Hearn, the most ancient thing in all imagination. His garments look like fairy clothes, sewn of moss and blackest fur, run through and threaded with silver and gold. All about him he wears not chains, but ancient leather straps loaded with tools of flint and bone. In one hand he bore a horn, cracked and split as if hollowed from the head of an auroch or some ancient bull-like beast, black and shining terribly. His beard was long and made of tendrils of tree roots, grown blue and green with lichen of every kind. And on his head was a skull, the skull of a great stag, white beneath the moon, antlers stretching wider than the span of an albatross, shooting from his head like captured sunbeams, vicious points of bleeding velvet, ragged, hanging, covered with bells which did not ring, and signs on stones I could not read. His eyes, Mary, were just as the king had said, like coals burning. So were his steeds. And though the vision of him is something I will never forget, it is the sound of his voice that haunts me. Like the breaking of stones beneath water, or the splintering cracks of a sapling bent back far too far. There was the wind at the edge of it, whistling through grass, weathering rocks, and the sound of it smelled somehow, his words stinking like a storm, lashing a desert, making it grow with slimy things that walked and spoke his tongue and followed after him. He turned to me and he spoke, and I saw then the golden crown upon his head, made of twisted gold and saw about his waist a girdle holding a sack, and his steed moved by, grain spilled from that sack, ghostly white as moonbeams, landing on the forest floor and vanishing where they fell. It was then, Mary, that I felt myself losing my mind. So, though he spoke, the rushing, heady smell of his language drowning me, clattering and clicking, buffeting and breaking, I closed my eyes and prayed to God and thought of the best thing I could in this world. It was of you, I thought, Mary, of your love, and it was you, your face in my mind, which made all the horrid words go quiet. 
When I opened my eyes, he was gone. And I wandered many, many hours more, lost in those woods, all until Brown found me and led me back to my apartment. I don't know what to do now. Whatever must have trapped him in that oak has freed him, and no force on earth can contain him of that, I'm sure. For the king, I can only do so much, for he's not mad, but knows the truth. The England is in crisis, and as long as this state remains so, he, our majesty, will not know peace. Of all the things I can do, there's only one which I'm sure is right, and that is to love you, Mary, and I will do all my days. How I wish you were here to hold me. How I fear that creature will return. Oh, I must rest. Soon John will come and expect me to attend to my duties. I love you now and always, Mary. May your face be the first one I see when I dream. Yours always, Robert Darling Willis, M.D. Okay, well, the first thing to say is, I think it's quite understandable that English monarchs make sure there's always a hands oak in the ground of Windsor Great Park. <laughs> I have to ask, how much of that did you make up? Well, quite a lot. I mean, obviously, George III did go mad, but I thought it was interesting that he did go mad around the same time that the original Hearn Oak was cut down. So I kind of just went from there. But the Willis family were from Lincolnshire, with Francis the father being the first to successfully treat George III at Kew alongside his son John. And then Robert came along later, treating the king right up until the king passed away. And he also went on to be in charge of all of London's asylums at the tail end of the Georgian era. That's so fascinating. I think it was a really interesting way to come into the story. Oh, thanks. Like from that, from the George III angle, which <laughs> I don't suppose anyone's thought to do before. Well, hopefully not. <laughs> well, hopefully not, absolutely. And so what about the Hearn the Hunter legend? Where does that originate? Well, as you mentioned at the end of last week's episode, the legend of Hearn the Hunter is mentioned in Shakespeare's play, The Merry Wives of Windsor. But the way the story is relayed in that play, it's as if people in the audience well knew the myth. And as far mm. as we can tell, nobody actually committed it to paper before that time. So we're just not sure where it came from. That's interesting because I think the, the, the gag in the play works on the understanding that people will know what they're seeing. Yeah, exactly. So it's a purely oral tradition before the Mary That's Westbrook. right, That's as far so as we know. I mean, it might be in the British Library deep somewhere that no one's not mm. found or, or somewhere else. But or under a different name, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we, we've encountered similar horse riding forest spirits and wild men For before sure, in yeah. other counties. I mean, we've got Old Crocken in Devon yep. and Edric the Wild in Shropshire. And then there's the Wild Hunt, of course, which is also associated with Odin or Woden in Norse and um, Anglo-Norse mythology. Yeah, absolutely. And with Hearn, there's a line of argument that connects him to foliate heads and the green man myth. And a further line of argument that also connects him to Kernonos 
an mm. ancient Celtic deity who appears in a number of Gallo-Roman sculptures. Are you familiar with Carnunos? Uh, the name rings a bell. Am I right in thinking he's a sort of nature god? Yeah, a horned god, usually displayed sat down. Some people associate Carnunos with imagery and poses that later became Baphomet, with the crossed legs and fertility symbols. He sometimes holds a horn of plenty, a cornucopia, sometimes a golden talk, sometimes a snake, sometimes a bag of grain. Yeah, now as soon as you said horned god, of course, the alarm bell started ringing. So in Wicca, the horned god is the kind of male counterpart to the mother goddess or the triple goddess. And the horned god uh, moves through the phases of life through the wheel of the year. So he's synonymous with the oak king and the holly king. So he sort of moves from youth to father to sage. It's the stages of manhood in the same way. Um, And obviously the holly king and the oak king slay each other in midsummer and midwinter solstice. So I tried in my story to basically write it in such a way that Hearn the Hunter could be any or all of these versions of him that we variously hold dear, depending on our belief systems. <laughs> I see what you did there. Hold dear. Oh, God. <laughs> Top punish there, Eleanor. And uh, one last thing about Carnunos and the horned god. The pentagram, or five-pointed star, is the symbol most associated with this ancient deity, with the points of the star relating to his horns, ears and chin. Interesting. I'm mm. just drawing that in the air now to <laughs> see how that works. I guess the the name as well. Yes. Genunos Hen. Yeah, it yeah. Could be, could be something like, there. Could be something there. Yeah, Might be a little bit tenuous. I feel like there's an academic paper in there somewhere. Yes. <laughs> Take it away, academic friends. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you, Martin. And uh, so what do we have this week by way of correspondence? Well, we had a lovely review on iTunes this week from Henge Dweller. Great name. Who wrote... Fantastic and thoughtfully done. Have only just started listening to this podcast after a recent discovery, and boy, is it good. Fantastic thought and research into every podcast and thoroughly enjoyable storytelling. Would recommend this podcast to anyone who loves tradition and folklore. Love the quirky folk remedies. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much, Henge Dweller. And I'm (laughs) picturing you living in a little house in the centre of Stonehenge. Yeah. (laughs) And so please, if you haven't already, hop onto iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write us a review. Yes. Or drop some stars on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm. Every little bit really does help. And we absolutely love reading what everyone has to say. We really do. Speaking of which, we've had some genuinely lovely emails and messages this week, including from Catherine, who sent us an excellent tidbit that we'll be including in our second listener episode. From Millie on Patreon, who was in touch about the amazing sounding Ely Eel Day Festival in Cambridgeshire, which we must attend next year. It's known for including a parade with an enormous eel as performed by several people wearing a massive costume. It looks incredible. Oh, we must go. I'm well up for that. Gary also wrote to us saying, I'm a Yank Anglophile and just wanted to take a minute to tell you both how much I love the show. I love all the history, the folk legends and your wonderful stories. Next fall, I'm planning a trip to England and I'll definitely be using the show for ideas for things to do. Keep up the great work and I'll keep listening. Ah, thanks so much, Gary. He's from Michigan, by the way, which he says is shaped like a mitten. That is a great way to remember states. Yeah. Why are we doing that for our county? <laughs> I know, right? I was Berkshire like, is shaped like yeah. a sort of splodge. Because well, most of them are sort of splodges. <laughs> That's why we don't Well, do I like the idea of Michigan as a mitten. That's really nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really cute. <laughs> we also have to give a huge shout out and massive thanks to our likers, commenters and super sharers this week, including Simon, Ruth, Michelle, Mary, Vivian, Laurie, John, Beth and Sharon on Facebook. 
CLWXO, Lady Herlakadens, Rachel Creates and Margaret Inglis on Instagram, and Anthony Smith, Psyche Cinema, Grim Graves, Johnny Valentine and Dora Moon on Twitter. Honestly, this week went bonkers on social media, so thank you to everybody who liked and commented and shared. And if we didn't mention you, no, we still massively appreciate and notice and are eternally eternally grateful do please keep going everyone tell your friends strangers in the street anyone with ears to hear and eyes to read and (laughs) please also flap on over to join us on social media via facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast instagram at three ravens podcast or twitter via three ravens pod and of course if you would like bonus content including exclusive episodes such as next week's patreon exclusive autumn equinox mega mabon special (laughs) and all of our mainline and bonus episodes ad free as well as all sorts of other goodies please consider supporting us on patreon for three dollars a month or six dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast so eleanor where are we off to next week we're not traveling far actually Uh, we're headed to surrey where i'm going to be telling the tale of the legendary heroine blanche harriet your favorite heroine you haven't heard of yet amongst other things is all right brilliant well i genuinely can't wait although on thursday we do have our new magic and medicines bonus episode on curse reversals so that should tide you over yeah very true well then until next time while our story's gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle till you're out of the woods Thanks and credit go to BerkshireHistory.com, the National Trust website, English Heritage website, and the team at Windsor Great Park, all of whom and which were very useful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaughs. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men With a down, derry, 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 down, down Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.